welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 72nd episode, our guest is Rick Wilson. Rick Wilson is a national Republican political strategist and media consultant based in Florida who has produced television for governors, U.S. Senate candidates, super PACs, and corporations. He's on Twitter at TheRickWilson. That's T-H-E-R-I-C-K-W-I-L-S-O-N. And now, on to the show. This is Rick. Hey, Rick. It's Rob. How are you? Good morning, Rob. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Great. Uh, did you have some time to talk right now? I sure do. Oh, uh, excellent. Okay. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I'm just a huge fan of, of your uh, <laughs> your Twitter and uh, all your appearances all around uh, in the last uh, year or so. It's been interesting getting to know you. So. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, you live in uh, Florida now, but did you uh, grow up in Florida? I grew up in Florida, uh, went to, and, then, and then in D.C., went to school up there. I lived in D.C., went to school up there, and, uh, and uh, then I worked in the first Bush administration, and then uh, back to Florida, and then lived in New York for a few years, and I worked for Giuliani, and then back to Florida again. So, Florida is home. Okay, cool. Uh, well, it's definitely uh, not a boring place to be, I'm sure, uh, at any given time. Never a dull so. moment. <laughs> um, but when you were growing up, uh, what kind of first got you interested in politics, uh, just in general? Well, um, you know, I went to school, uh, and I was I was basically a guy who was uh, was was in the, that last generation of young cold warriors in Washington, just as, just before graduated from college, just before the wall came down, basically a couple of years before, mm-hmm. and was uh, was going to happily go do that. Uh, and I was waiting to sort of uh, sort out what I was going to do next in terms of, of training and 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 education. And then I ended up getting a job working for a guy named Connie Mack, who was then running for U.S. Senate. He's a House member then. Um, and so with Connie uh, running for U.S. Senate, I became an advanced guy for them. And in the middle of their campaign, I uh, did an advance on an event for the then Vice President George Bush, and their campaign said, we would like you to come work for us. So I did. Yeah. Um, went to work. I was a field director for Florida and ran a whole bunch of, of, of big areas of the state for the, for the campaign, had a great time. Uh, you know, did, did, We did very well. And I was invited to come up to D.C., and because of my my background at the time, they sent me over to the Pentagon, from White House to work in the Pentagon, uh, for this guy named Dick Cheney, who was the Secretary of Defense. And it, it, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but you were just Republican Party from the jump. It wasn't like you ever had a moment of doubt. You sounds like you just, from the beginning of your political career, you were kind of on that Republican track. Well, here's the thing. I mean, my parents were not particularly Republican, and my, my mom was, you know, kind of a liberal hippie. Oh, really? Um, okay. and, and and I think people, I, I think it's people a little younger than me, they overlook the deep impact that Jimmy Carter's presidency had on people who were teenagers mm-hmm. in the 70s, as I was. And and the the sense of, of danger and of of, of malaise and of uh, a sort of a collapsed American system that was permeating this whole culture mm. really shaped a lot of kids my age um, at that time. And so when Reagan came along, it was an optimistic, prospective, um, uh, you know, big picture kind of of, of look of, of, at conservatism, and 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 as at the Republican Party. 
And the interesting thing is now people don't they, they don't they look back on Reagan and they don't really see it as clearly as it seemed then. It was a much more inclusive kind of conservatism. It was a, there was a big smile with it. It wasn't didn't feel punitive or nasty or negative or small. It felt like something that was that was a a, a, a bigger, more uplifting thing. Like I said, you know, retrospective. Uh, retrospective, you know, views of these things are, are different now. Mm-hmm. But it felt that it was a lot. It was it, it, we were the optimistic rising tide of the political culture. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and it wasn't like a regional party at that time. It was kind of like, you know, like you're saying, a lot of people who, you know, if you look at those electoral maps, it's like places you never expect to go for Republicans were just flipping right and left. So it was kind of like a Big Ten thing, kind of like you're saying. Um, Now, I've uh, read a little bit about your background, and one person that you worked with early on in your career uh, is somebody that I've been kind of interested in for a while, uh, Lee Atwater. Uh, I think people don't realize how big of an impact he's had on kind of how our politics look uh, in the last 30 years or so. Um, First of all, could you kind of explain your relationship with him and and kind of like what you learned from him? Well, look, I was one of his foot soldiers. Mm -hmm. You know, I I wasn't one of Lee's immediate deputies at the time. I was way too young for that. Mm -hmm. But every one of us shaped our sort of, we modeled our sort of the way we went and operated in the field um, and did our politics uh, on the fact that this guy was relentless and tireless and detail-oriented and would know things and would build relationships with people. And again, it's one of these things where now there's sort of the caricature of Lee Atwater, um, you know, based on an ad he didn't write, um, but that but there's sort of the character. But this was a guy who was one of the early adopters of combining the old school of political engagement, where you talk to people, where you, I mean, it's one of the reasons I'm on the phone every day, all day, mm-hmm. still to this point in my life, because because you gain knowledge by building relationships. You gain influence by building relationships. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we all learn that as these young foot soldiers for him, that you got to call people, you got to know who's who, you got you got to figure out what the, what the map of a relationship is in the political climate. So you know the right guy to call, you know the right woman to call, you know who to, who to get on the phone, you know how to talk to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also was one of the first people who started to apply metrics and data in campaigns. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just, you know, you're doing all right. It was, have you sent field people to the following four counties and taking care of that thing? You know, have you gone and gotten this guy the twenty-five yard signs he wants? Because we know he'll put him up. Have you have you gone and taken care and sat down with so and so to get you know a commitment for this amount of money? So all those metrics that we had to sort of chase all the time, people people look at that now as an essential and basic part of campaigning. But it wasn't always that way mm-hmm. with campaigns then, and it wasn't always as formalized and as structured and. And look, he also was a person who who shaped the, the views of a lot of us with having a very balls out, in your face, direct style of politics. Mm-hmm. You know, we stopped playing a lot of the games of you know my honorable friend and started saying, "What's the best method to, by which we can go and knock this guy out of the box? Mm-hmm. What's the hardest ad we can write and get away with it? What's the best way to communicate with this group's people about this or that issue?" Mm-hmm. And again, like I said. The sort of historical revisionism on Lee Atwater is that it was this red meat, red meat race baiting shit all the time. But, it, but, but you know, the reality of these campaigns is is we were out in the field doing you know a lot of one on one politics and appealing to folks on local issues that, that they needed to hear about. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and on things that on things that move numbers 
in states and areas that that we identified through polling mm-hmm. and that we identified through research, which he was also a fan of. And so, so like I said, the, that sort of thing, all those sort of things shape you. It's, it's like I, the best analogy I can give you is, uh, you know, a lot of these guys who fought in World War II, mm-hmm. um, you know, who, who, you know, idolized Patton or Eisenhower, and 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 you know Lee Atwater in the Republican Party was kind of an Eisenhower figure. He was kind of a guy who who led us out of the wilderness. That that, that post Watergate wilderness was a pretty bleak place for the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it didn't look like that was going to break anytime soon in 1980. Mm-hmm. It looked like we were still going to end up in that in that position, except for Carter's, you know. Giving us the opportunity to cut his to cut his head off <laughs> politically, right? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I I, I kind of know what you mean about the caricature of of Lee Atwater. He definitely comes up as a boogeyman. Uh, you know, if if you read some certain histories of of that time, but you know, I, I've read more about him, and it seems like you know there's layers to it. You know, he he was a blues aficionado for one thing, which I didn't know, which he is was pretty interesting. Indeed, which, uh, one of the other reasons I love him because I grew up with my well, my dad listening. To a lot of old Delta Blues and a oh, lot nice. of old the seventy eights of of you know all this stuff all this you know black belt uh, blues music from the nineteen thirties and or twenties and thirties and forties right and so and he and he was very knowledgeable actually yeah of, of, of the blues scene uh huh um, now I have to imagine if you were kind of in that uh, scope with uh, Lee Atwater that you must have ran into uh, some names we'll probably be familiar with uh, today uh, Roger Stone and, and Paul Manafort uh, did you uh, ever run into them back uh, in those days and when what can you tell us about them from personal experience I didn't really run into I, I didn't really run into them much back in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, but I uh, obviously knew of them mm-hmm. and I, I've known Roger for, you know, a number of years. And frankly, we were always fairly cordial with one another. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're once in a blue moon, we'd be on a project together. Um, but you know, with Trump, he is, that's always been his, like, uh, his lottery ticket. Um, and, and we haven't really had a friendly relationship since the Trump, uh, thing kicked off mm-hmm. which you know roger is a colorful guy he's a he's a he's a hell of a character you know if he if he if he didn't exist you'd have to write him <laughs> for, the, for the for the movie although um, if you wrote him i feel like an editor would be like this is a little little much <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. right exactly but there are there are i think the the, the thing about roger and, and this was a, a a very senior consultant one time told me a guy, a guy older than all of us, who'd sort of been through every damn war. Mm-hmm. He said, "Roger has is Roger has has made an entire career over one line of bullshit, which is great." <laughs> and, and, and you know what? God bless, God bless him. You know what? God bless him. Um, and you know he's turned he's turned in the last year and a half much more towards this sort of new conspiratorial um, media model mm-hmm. where. The deep state and the Bilderbergers and the Rothschilds and the Jews are all going to, well, maybe not the Jews in this case. But <laughs> well, that's, that's implied. Very, we don't have to say that. Yeah, right. I know. Right? <laughs> yes, yeah, shadowy bankers. You know, yeah, right. right? <laughs> the sheriff stars, they're everywhere. <laughs> right. But these guys, these, he has certainly sort of embraced uh, that, that uh, InfoWars brand of media. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because he's basically been. I won't say he's been, you know, banned from the air, but people um, in the media structure of the country, in the mainstream media, aren't 
they're not as they're not as willing to just listen to Roger say things like Hillary Clinton murdered Seth Rich with her bare hands. You know, they're, not, they're just not willing to listen to that kind of thing as much anymore. Right. And like I said, God bless Roger. He's got a shtick. He wrote the Trump thing, and he's 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 monetized the Trump thing, mm-hmm. and 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 who knows what his real relationship with Trump is today? Mm-hmm. Because it's impossible to really understand it from mm-hmm. the outside. Um, but you know. Like I said, uh, hey, I'm a capitalist. He 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 monetized a product and 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 sold it, and mm-hmm. that product was his relationship with Trump. You yeah, bless him. Well, he sure he yeah. sure has. So um, that uh, Netflix documentary was something else. <laughs> he definitely uh, leans into you know, the whole super villain thing. Everybody keeps bugging me to watch it, and I just haven't seen it yet. Oh, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you've probably seen up close most of what's in it. But <laughs> <laughs> Roger very clearly models himself on Roy Cohn, mm-hmm. um, the famous New York attorney. He was also Trump's attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he very clearly models himself on that, and 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 it's certainly. Um, it's certainly, uh, you know, Rogers. Rogers' whole like, you know, hardball player thing is 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 not uncommon in politics. Some of it's just presented differently, mm-hmm. right? And, and you know, I, I'm not known as, exactly as a person who has shown great mercy in political campaigns mm-hmm. or great uh, willingness to uh, to not drop drop the, the hammer on people. Mm-hmm. But it's just a matter of. Of you know, I don't necessarily walk around wearing a wearing a cloak and 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 a and a, and a velvet top hat when I do it. <laughs> you don't look like you're about to float away in some sort of hot air balloon after you <laughs> completely screw everything up or something. Right. Shaking my shaking my beringed <laughs> fist and saying, "Curse you, kid! I almost got away with it." <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, but yeah, kind of speaking of uh, what you were just talking about with the advertisements, uh, you got your kind of big break, uh, as far as I understand, from the 1988 uh, presidential campaign of George H.W. Bush and the last vice president from, you know, where I live in Indiana here, Dan Quayle. Um, mm-hmm. That campaign is obviously known for one of the most famous political ads of all time, the Willie Horton ad. Um, that was obviously, uh, you know, you look at the results and that was obviously very devastating for, for Dukakis. Um, what was your hand in that and kind of could you I take... didn't I didn't have any hand oh you didn't have, have any hand, hand in it no. Horton ad. no that, no. that was uh, before my time as a media as an ad maker I see um, okay. I started making uh, so after the Bush administration ended uh, when Clinton won mm-hmm. uh, in 92 I started uh, making ads in 94 mm-hmm. um, working down in, with a, with uh, Adam and Bob Goodman and Adam and Bob were and Bob was a one of the founders of the political ad business. Mm-hmm. One of the guys who like goes back to Eisenhower. And so I learned so much from these people. It was nuts. They're mm-hmm. great creative forces, great ad makers. Adam is still a friend of mine. We, we were business partners for a long time, but, but we, we went our separate ways in, I guess, 2000. But they're, they're tremendous. Uh, they gave me a tremendous amount of experience in, in, in combining, you know, uh, the the visually appealing and compelling style that they had created, and I was able to then roll in. A, as my grandmother used to say, "False modesty is the worst kind." Mm. I'm a good writer, and I'm a good quick writer uh, for the compressed form of a television ad. Mm-hmm. You know, a TV ad for this that runs 30 seconds has about 70 words in it. You've got to tell a whole story and move a lot of different pieces around the map in those 70 words in 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it turns out I was pretty good at it. And in in 90, 
seven, we, out of nowhere, you know, these two guys from Florida managed to win Rudy Giuliani's business in New York City mm-hmm. when he was running for mayor, mm-hmm. re-election for mayor. We had a very successful run. Uh, we blew out every anticipated number. Yeah, you know, this is before Rudy was America's mayor on 9-11 and before mm-hmm. the city's economic you know, recovery had been completely sort of uh, taken as, as, a, as a given. And we won in New York City with had a five to one Democratic voter registration uh, at, with fifty eight percent of the vote. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that was our media campaign. You know, a lot of it was him being a fearless campaigner, but a lot of it was the media effort we brought into the into the mix. And so that sort of made my bones as an ad maker mm-hmm. in on the national level. And then I went on from there to do tons of statewide work um, all over the country, mm-hmm. uh, congressional campaigns, governors, senators. Statewide ballot initiatives, um, you know, state senate, state house races, and, and, and I mean, like in Florida, a state senate race makes uh, spends as much money as a congressional race. Mm-hmm. So we, we we had a lot of, of big complex project experience like that. And in in the fall of '98, I went back to New York to work for Rudy um, in City Hall as a senior advisor to the mayor. Uh, and then uh, that was sort of in preparation for him running for U.S. Senate against Hillary Clinton in 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't work out quite like we thought. He got prostate cancer in the middle of it, which is, you know, a, a, a piece of bad news of the highest degree for just about anybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went to work for the RNC in the Bush campaign mm-hmm. uh, at the presidential. So did that for the rest of 2000. Um, I made the infamous ad, uh, they call it the Bin Laden ad, against Max Cleland in the U.S. Senate race in Georgia in 2002, mm. which um, changed the game, changed the race, changed the ball game there completely, and managed to, to win a race that helped us take control of the U.S. Senate. Uh, from there, you know, I just kept I just kept doing, you know, more races uh, across the country. I guess I've worked now in 38 states or maybe 39 now, I'm not sure. Mm. Um and and a lot of it has been uh, in the last few years through the association super PAC and you know and and committee structure rather than just going into campaigns mm-hmm. because in 2006 I spent 221 days on the road mm-hmm. and I woke up at a in a hotel one morning I did not know where I was I did not know what day it was and I was like maybe this is what a panic attack feels like. <laughs> so, um, in in o in o in the, the end of o six, um, you know, I decided I was going to reconfigure the business model a little bit. And in o eight, you know, we had we had McCain Feingold to pass, so the 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 emergence of super PACs was really locked in, and with citizens, it was really locked in. Mm-hmm. So I was able to do the same scope of work without having to be on the road all the time. Mm. So, you know, in twenty ten, for instance, we did races, we did thirty five ads. Uh, for for Republican candidates across the country mm-hmm. uh, for a, a, a constellation of super PACs, you know, who were pushing to to elect a Republican majority, um, and and so I was able to basically do that remote control. I didn't have to go out and spend you know a week pitching an account in in Iowa or Indiana or Wisconsin. I could you know go out once and and see the clients in Washington. We'd figure out what we were going to do, and bang, bang, bang. So the super PAC world was very, very good to me, mm-hmm. and it has, it's continued to be good to me because it allows me to have a a better lifestyle than I than I was having as a as a as a as a consultant, which yeah. is a you know 
it, it looks glamorous on paper, but an awful lot of it is, oh, my God, my flight's delayed five hours. I'm stuck in O'Hare Airport. Kill me now. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's not as glamorous on the inside, I'm sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, going back to Rudy Giuliani, what do you make of what's happened to him as far as Trump goes? I mean, it, he seems like he's completely on board with everything. And, and people yeah, are talking I, about I, him for I, attorney general, possibly, if Sessions gets fired. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I can't speak. I, I haven't spoken to Rudy since since the middle of 15 or the mm-hmm. end of 15, I guess, because of our difference on this matter. Mm-hmm. Um and I, 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 I can't, I can't explain it. Um, and I know that this is a guy who was a former federal prosecutor, mm-hmm. um, could have put Donald Trump's associates in jail 10 times over by now. Mm-hmm. And I know this is a guy who directly engaged in prosecutorial action that took out organized crime enterprises mm-hmm. and that specialized in using the RICO statute to knock out, um, you know, again, complex organized crime operations, uh, which strongly resemble everything about the Trump universe Mm -hmm. and about the Russian connections to them. So I can't speak to his motivations and, and I, and I don't think I will, Mm -hmm. but it's just, it's a contrast to the Rudy as crime fighter that I knew for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, in the 2008 campaign, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were partially or fully responsible for the Jeremiah Wright campaign. Was that correct? I, I, I was the creator of the Jeremiah Wright ad in the 2008 campaign. Right. So how, how did you how did you come across that information? And uh, tell us about the creation of that. Well, the information was, was already uh, circulating mm-hmm. in the springtime. Um, and actually we didn't get the information, uh, the information actually came to, from research that the Clinton campaign had done. <laughs> so, mm. the, the ironies abound, yeah. but, um, <laughs> but look, we recognized that Reverend Wright, it wasn't, it wasn't his race that was the, 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 the motivating factor. Mm-hmm. It was the line, goddamn America. Mm-hmm. And it tested in a focus group because, because you had the calm affect of Barack Obama mm-hmm. contrasting with this guy who was an obvious lunatic. Mm-hmm. And and if he'd been a white preacher saying the same thing, the ad would have been the same exact ad. It would have been the same exact ad. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he in focus groups, he came across as a lunatic. Mm-hmm. Now, there just wasn't enough resource to go out there and pound that ad in at the last... I mean, the super PAC that was doing it, we had more ads on the air in Ohio and Pennsylvania in the last week of the campaign than the McCain campaign had, mm-hmm. than, than the actual formal campaign could do. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were out of money. And and when when the financial crisis hit and McCain essentially pulled the ejection handle mm-hmm. and, and said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suspend my campaign during the financial crisis, you know, we just couldn't, you, you couldn't overcome that. Yeah. Good ad, moved the numbers, mm-hmm. worked in the testing. Um, but you know, good and good enough are two different things. Right, right. Yeah, obviously Obama was able to shake that off. But yeah, I kind of forgot about that whole suspending the campaign thing. That probably uh, contributed to that. I'm sure. Oh, I, I can tell you, I was watching the tracking that we were running overnight, mm-hmm. and and his numbers just went into a free fall. Mm-hmm. He suspended his campaign. Right, right. 
definitely. Ordinary voters don't hear that. They hear, oh, McCain dropped out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's all they heard. Um, I know you're not one for, you know, regretting things or whatever, but is there anything that you would have done differently on, on campaigns or ads that you ran um, in, in previous times here? You know, honestly, not particularly, because I've, I've had a set of rules uh, in my mind and a set of things in my campaign ads that, that have always stood me in pretty good stead. Mm-hmm. Always kept me in pretty good stead. And th- the, the, the three basic rules. When I can, I use the words of the person we're attacking. Mm-hmm. And I use them as honestly and directly as I can because often your opponent will put their head in the noose for you. Okay? Mm-hmm. The second thing is the ads are fact-based. They are not just, you know, I, I would never have run an ad that said, Barack Obama may be a Kenyan Muslim because we can't find his birth certificate. I would never have done that. It didn't feel factual. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I was one of the guys who, who, when that hot, hot rumor was floating around out there that came from the Clinton campaign again, mm-hmm. um, I, I hired somebody, a researcher, and I said, Fine, just, go, just, just check this shit out. The guy literally calls me and goes, thanks for the free weekend in Hawaii. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I, I, I got the birth record in about four minutes at the at the Department of State. I mean, so we just dismissed it. I was the right. first person, and I was the first Republican consultant in the country to say, this is fucking stupid. Stop it. Mm-hmm. You guys are utter idiots if you believe this ridiculous shit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it became something that still to this day, there are people on my side of the aisle who will still bring that shit up, and it makes me cuckoo. Mm-hmm. Not only because it was a lie, and it was, and it was, it was a complete made-up, fabricated bullshit lie, mm-hmm. um, but because it was politically ineffective. I mean, that that offends me more than the lie in some ways, <laughs> you know. But but uh, the other the other so that that rule of things being fact based is very important to me, mm-hmm. and and I don't stretch the boundaries on ads when it comes down to a vote or a fact. I mean the Saxby Chambliss, uh, Max Cleland ad, the Bin Laden ad. Mm-hmm. People think it does one thing, but they they haven't really watched it. They say, oh, it turned Max Cleland into Bin Laden. It said he was a terrorist. They did no such thing. All it did was very calmly say, these are the votes that Max Cleland took to prevent George Bush from establishing, and I know today this seems different, but back then it was a hugely desirable outcome. These are the votes Max Cleland took against establishing the Department of Homeland Security. He's delaying the Department of Homeland Security. Remember, this is 2002, mm-hmm. where the wounds are fresh and the pain is high. Okay, and And so we put those votes on the screen. And the tagline was, Matt Cleland says he has the courage to lead, but the truth is he's just misleading. Mm-hmm. Because his assertion in a speech that we got is he said, I vote with George W. Bush all the time on security. Well, he didn't. It wasn't true. Mm-hmm. We banged him on it. Um, you know, and, 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 and the third rule I have is very simple. I leave out the extraneous stuff. And that means I never bring their kids into it unless their kids are named Jared Havanka and and Don Jr. and Eric, you know. Those those people Uday and Kuse, you civilians. mean? <laughs> yeah, Uday and Kuse. They're they're not civilians anymore. But I, I try to leave out stuff that's extraneous. I try not to make reaches on things that aren't that don't that don't add to the that don't add to the ad. That don't mm-hmm. add to the story. The through line of these stories has to be X did Y or X believes Y 
and that's and those aren't things you like or believe. Mm-hmm. And so people who bring in all the other bullshit, like affairs and 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 divorces, unless there's violence involved or law breaking, mm-hmm. those things stay out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Okay, you never bring the kids into the thing. And I, I mean, I've seen people who've done it a few times, and it's just like it backfires like nothing else in the world. Mm-hmm. It backfires. I mean, it's like it's like you know, putting the shotgun loaded with buck and putting it on the top of your foot to blow it off. It's just, <laughs> it's just the stupidest thing in the world. Right. But like I said, you know, reductionism in ads is important, mm-hmm. and getting to sort of culturally relevant moments it, as an ad, making that thing that people remember is you have to reduce it down to one simple emotional state by the end. Mm-hmm. And that that generally comes by not distracting yourself with the shiny objects that either assholes think work or that political hacks think work. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't tell you the number of consultants I've sat with, general consultants who go, well, he got divorced, and we've got his divorce record, and it says that they were, he was mean. I'm like, fucking shut up. <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what do you really think that's going to do when 60% of the people in this country have gone through a divorce? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. So like said, unless there's violence or, or some sort of, uh, you know, a guy who beats up his wife and she leaves, and that's a whole different story. Mm-hmm. That's a whole separate issue. Mm-hmm. But but in the big picture, uh, a tighter ad is a better ad that is, uh, a better ad is a tighter ad, and a tighter ad sticks to the, to the, the things that really matter. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and kind of going back to Lee Atwater a little bit, um, and I don't certainly want to hang this on you or him even particularly, uh, just, but maybe the Republican Party in general. Do you think there's anything that the party did to like, lay the groundwork for someone, Trump, or someone like Trump to come along? Well, I, I, it's not so much the party, because the, the truth of the matter is the parties themselves have dropped in relevance and power mm-hmm. in the last 20 years, okay? Mm-hmm. It used to be that a Republican Party led by a powerful chairman could have said, uh, Donald Trump is an obvious lunatic and sociopath. He's not going to get the nomination. That is all. He does not represent any of our values. He's a danger to the future of this country. And then that, and that kind of party chairman could have, could have popped in in a hot second. Um, a powerful party chairman on the Democratic side could have said, Bernie Sanders is going to divide this party. We're going to get behind our, 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 our nominees. That's that. And, you know, you, you, neither party can pull that kind of thing off anymore. Mm-hmm. Neither party can, can swing that kind of highly, um, uh, of highly uh, disciplined party action. But, 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 but more importantly, is that you know, the country has sort of hived itself off into these two hermetic media cycles, mm-hmm. or media silos, rather. Mm-hmm. And on the, on, on the right, you know, while Democrats were very, very smug in the, in, the, in the 90s and 2000s, that they had this sort of cultural hegemony, and that there was nothing that could change that, and that, that, they, that they controlled media and entertainment, um, and, and, and that was going to reshape the culture in their view. Mm-hmm. And Republicans, at the same time, were building up Fox, and really wasn't Republicans, it was really Rupert Murdoch, were building up Fox, were building up the, 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 the vast talk radio infrastructure where 30 million Americans tuned in every week. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't something everybody saw, but it was something that became very powerful. And so, 
for ad makers, not for me, because I have a slightly different style, but for a lot of ad makers, they could go and find a headline on Fox or somewhere else mm-hmm. or, or Breitbart that said, Barack Obama is a Kenyan Muslim. And they put it in their ads and prove it, quote unquote, in their heads. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know he's a Kenyan Muslim because we found a story on Fox that said he's a Kenyan Muslim. <laughs> well, uh, you know, those things sort of reinforced uh, over and over again this this siloed media mm-hmm. and and the fact that we don't have that, that our cultural institutions have all sort of, uh, of, of fall, have fallen apart that we're, we've disintermediated all those things mm-hmm. um, and the fact that that we've we've entered this space where your online political affiliations and your online political activity is more dispositive to what you're going to do behaviorally than 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 your party registration. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we're 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 sort of past that era where anybody can take, you know, the the full hit, uh, the full responsibility or the full credit um, for, for for these kind of candidates. I mean, look, Barack Obama. Um, was not in his first election to to to, to the to, to the presidency a particularly Democratic Party guy. Mm-hmm. He was a, a a figure who was seen as much more of a celebrity, much more of a of a of a, of a sort of comet passing through the night um, than a standard candidate. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't because he was a party apparatchik. He kind of was, but that wasn't the image of him. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Barack Obama was stunt casting in that regard, not not a guy who rose to the ranks of the Democratic machine for years and years and did all that stuff, mm-hmm. but rather a guy who had this, this wild hair charisma that reshaped the political landscape. Mm-hmm. And so Trump comes along, a, 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 a genuine celebrity. Mm-hmm. Trump comes along and... and, and, and you know, 16 qualified Republican candidates, well, 15 if you count, don't count Ben Carson. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, 16 highly qualified candidates, guys who in any ordinary election year would be like rock stars, get blown out by by a, a man who's, you know, fairly obviously, mm-hmm. um, you know, possessed of several mental diseases, mental mm-hmm. diseases or disorders. And, and who is a serial liar, mm-hmm. a serial adulterer. And so the, this, the power of a celebrity, whether it's a Barack Obama or a Donald Trump, upsets all of the things that we think of as the, as the normative factors in the election. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think we're sort of past that era in some ways of the traditional politician uh, running a traditional political campaign mm-hmm. because, you know, Look, let's just hypothesize. Just, I'm just going to pick a name for no, for no. Let's just say Ben Fast decides he's going to run for president. Donald Trump gets struck by lightning and eaten by wolves, right? In 2020, Ben Fast says, "I'm going to run for president." And Ben's a, gr- a good guy, a smart guy. Mm-hmm. I picked him because he's not one of the 16 candidates. Okay, mm-hmm. one of the next 22. Right. So he's a good guy. He's a smart guy. He goes out. He starts doing all the things he has to do. He raises the money. He goes and kisses the right rings in Iowa, New Hampshire, and all over the place. He does all the things he's supposed to do. And has good advisors and good polling and knows his message and speaks to his heart. And then, again, a hypothesis, the rock says, I'm going to run in the Republican primary. You know what happens to Ben Sass? It's over. Yeah. It's over that minute of that day. Mm -hmm. It's over the second 
The Rock says, I'm going to run in this Republican primary. Is The Rock a Republican? Who the hell knows? I don't know. <laughs> and it won't even matter. Uh-huh. It won't even make a bit of difference. Right. We, we are in this era in, in, in the United States of ambition where celebrity is as important as resume. Mm-hmm. And, and so on the Democratic side, there are a lot of people who think, well, you know, we it's Bernie's turn or it's Kamala Harris's turn and this is the well, guess what? If if Mark Zuckerberg gets in it, with his resources and his and his name ID and his toolbox, Mark Zuckerberg changes the race. Mm-hmm. If 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 some well-known celebrity on the Democrat, let me just say, okay, so here, let's just say Kamala Harris gets in the race. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And then a couple of days later, The Rock says, "I'm running as a Democrat." Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the ball game. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's the celebrity culture that this country is immersed in. It is the TV culture that we are immersed in. It is these these are these are powerful factors, and and television and celebrity and those things. They're some of the few remaining forces that mediate how people buy, think, and behave in this country. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not the television evening news anymore. Right. But it's the Q factor of these people. And because look, Donald Trump was on television for 13 years mm-hmm. with a highly ranked reality television show. And if you look at who the people who watch reality television shows like The Apprentice are, they're the Trump voter. Mm-hmm. That that Donald Trump got who he get. He got who he got when he, when he was on TV. Mm-hmm. Trust me, my hedge fund clients were not watching The Apprentice, thinking, "Man, Donald Trump is such a business leader." Uh, my favorite, my favorite quote of the campaign. I have a hedge fund client. I'm a, I do speeches for the guy. Write speeches for the guy, uh-huh. and, and you'd know his name if I told you, but I'm not going to tell you. Okay. <laughs> but I said to him, I went to him in August of 15. I was like, "Dude, this fucking guy is terrible. We've got to do something about Trump." And he said, I said, I said, listen, he's a billionaire. He can spend all this money. He goes, he's not a billionaire. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? He goes, I am a billionaire. He goes, I'm a billionaire eight times over. Donald Trump is not a billionaire. I'm like, well, I thought, I thought, he goes, and the greatest line I've ever heard about Trump. He says, Donald Trump is a clown living on credit. Mm-hmm. And, and this guy, you know, this guy could, could eat up Donald Trump and crap him out 10 times and not even notice financially mm-hmm. and and but but on tv donald trump was the decisive brilliant billionaire candidate uh who was smart and who knew everything about everything and mm-hmm. who was the product of the uh, Wharton business school and was the greatest businessman in america and uh, success at everything he touched and yada 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 well you know the reality is of course nothing close to that mm-hmm and and so but but television made it so mm-hmm. television made it real and and you could you could sit there with people and believe me we tried in focus groups and say well uh this this is the real record of trump in atlantic city or this is the real record of trump somewhere else and and you could see the shades and the and the and the, and the, the, the foreshadowing of the fake news thing, mm. even back then, mm. these people would say, "Well, you're a liar. Mm. You don't like Mr. Trump, and you're you're lying. Mr. Trump is the most successful businessman ever, and he's worth a trillion billion billion dollars. And and they just must be haters who, who are trying to hurt him who, who, who are saying this. Mm-hmm. And 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 that, that perception 
that that he is you know that was shaped by television and shaped by entertainment media mm. is very powerful, mm-hmm. and you're going to see that in 2020. Um, yeah, and when when some celebrities decide they're going to you know get a bug up their tail and, mm-hmm. and run for office. Yeah, that's a great point, and I feel like both parties need to get over this idea of it's my turn because I I don't know about you, but well, I was ex- I was expecting the Jeb Bush, uh, Hillary Clinton race personally, and I was like, oh, here we go again. We're gonna have the two dynasties fighting it out. Wake me up when it's over. Um, but I, you know, I've been totally so I I mean I I guess I'm just a, a rube or something, but I've been totally surprised at every turn of the Trump rise. Um, what was your uh, I mean among fellow Republicans. I'm not a Republican, but from the outside, I looked at this and I'm like, what? these people aren't going to fall for this. This guy is not obviously not a Republican. Literally, literally no one, no Republican consultant, including, by the way, almost all the Republican consultants who worked for Donald Trump, mm-hmm. including Kellyanne and including Steve Bannon and all those other people, thought he could win. Mm-hmm. They were, for the last couple of weeks of the campaign, Calling people, going, well, man, this is fun. You know, let's, let's get a drink after. You know, hey, you know, this is crazy. They didn't think he could win. In fact, they were convinced he was going to lose. On election night, Kellyanne Conway was calling reporters saying, well, I would have done this and this and this different. We lost because we didn't follow my plan to do X and Y and Z. It was not, it, they were not. They were not even pretending they were going to win, mm-hmm. and they didn't know they were going to win. They had no clue. All this stuff in, in the in the in the post hoc. Um, oh, we don't, this was our plan all along. It's total bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's total bullshit. They 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 they, they thought they were going to lose, and and the 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 series of un, of un, unforeseen circumstances of Comey and a few other things in the last week of weeks of the campaign. Mm-hmm turned it around, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't something they did. It was something that happened to them. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, You're kind of one of the progenitors of the whole never Trump thing. And, um, you know, what kind of pushback have you gotten from, you know, you've you've talked a little bit about certain people that you don't really speak to over this anymore. Um, You know, I I suspect that you and I probably wouldn't agree on a whole lot were it not for for Trump, but there is certain things I thought were beyond party. uh, And, you know, just if you're an American, you care about, but it just seems like that the rot of whatever tribalism has has dug so deep that it's, it's hard to see a way out yeah. of it. So, what, what's your take on I think that? That's, I think that's very true. I think I think right now, um, and look, I, I've lost friends, which I regret mm-hmm. um, over this. I've lost business, which I you know I regret it. I'm not I'm not I'm a big boy. I, I recognize that I was taking a chance mm-hmm. and taking a, and, and taking a moral step, and in politics, moral steps are rarely rewarded. Mm-hmm. But um, but I, you know. I, I, but I've lost, I've lost a lot of relationships with people who, who, well, I've lost a lot of public relationships. Let me say it that way. Mm. There are an awful lot of, of people that I talk to mm-hmm. all the time who are on paper, raw, raw Donald Trump super fans mm. who then call me after their speech or after their floor appearance, basically in tears saying, oh my fucking God, how are we going to survive this lunatic? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, 
I, and again, I'm going to keep the I'm going to keep the name elliptical. But I speak to a member of the house who who I've been friends with for a long time. Who's who's amazingly not a client, just a friend. Mm-hmm. And and this person on paper, you would think he was the most rock hard, absolute Trump handboy of all time. Mm-hmm. You would think that he would set himself on fire and let Donald Trump fuck his wife. <laughs> this is a guy who, who, who on paper who on paper has never said a word against Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Calls me, we talk it once a week at least, and it's just like, dude, oh my God, oh my God, mm-hmm. what am I going to do? I can't go home to my constituents and tell them that the president that they love is insane. And who, who, when you sit in a room with him, literally doesn't know the first thing about the health care bill or anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 it's a sense of like mortification about how dumb the guy is mm-hmm. and, how, and, how, and how unstable he is and how little they can rely on anything he says. Mm-hmm. The currency of Washington is trust. Okay? The, the, the currency of Washington is credibility. It's keeping your word. It's being able for people to go, yeah, okay, I made a deal with so-and-so. The deal's done. None of them believe they can make a deal with Donald Trump or have an agreement with Donald Trump or have a or have a, 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 a an accord with Donald Trump that lasts longer mm-hmm. than Donald Trump's incredibly short attention span. Mm-hmm. He has no attention span. Mm-hmm. And he has no honor and no whatever. But it shouldn't surprise people. But Donald Trump is a guy who has never kept a vow in his life. Mm-hmm. Marital, contract, anything else. Mm-mm. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of figured something like that had to be going on behind the scenes. Um, but we've kind of seen a little bit of pushback, at least in public. I, I wouldn't say it's, it's kind of pushed enough pushback, obviously, because he's still president. But, uh, you know, we have this uh, Russia sanctions bill that they forced him to sign, basically. Um, you know, McCain, obviously, with the health care vote. And also, you know, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. I don't want to leave them off either. Um, Jeff Flake's book. Uh, you know, they're you're trying to put these bills through to protect Mueller. Um, do you see a, a turning point, I, I kind of saw it with Sessions to be honest, and I didn't expect that to be the red line for people, but apparently when he started going after Sessions, that was just enough is enough for certain Republicans. So are you seeing a turning point among people you know? Uh, I, I, I would say we are at we are at more than, well, not quite an, a turning point, but an inflection mm-hmm. where, where you know, it's like turning an aircraft carrier. Mm. And I, I spoke to somebody in leadership the other day and and you know and this person reached out to me and said hey we're doing the we're we're, we're you know we're going to send the sanctions bill over it's going to pass we're going to do it you know and and i said well it's about time and the person says look it is like turning an aircraft carrier mm-hmm. you have to do it slowly it takes a lot of effort to to move something this big with this much momentum in the correct direction mm-hmm. and i get that i think that's a legitimate and 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 serious uh, way of looking at mm-hmm. at where we're at right now because without without the ability to to slowly shift direction, you know, we would have a you know blood in the streets practically with these people. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, the thing I can never get my head around is I just feel like. I think they would like Pence better, wouldn't they? I mean, wouldn't they just like working with him more? He's one of them. He's from Congress. He served 12 years. You know, he's that evangelical, uh, 
you know, Tip. He's got that going for him. Uh, I just feel like he would sign whatever they want, and then they wouldn't have to worry about him, you know, starting a nuclear war in a tweet. Uh, why don't they just go for that? I mean, would it just be too detrimental to the party? Are they scared of their own still, voters? It's or still too much of a look. Trump still has 65, 70 percent approval with the Republican Party with the base. Gosh, now that only yields you 33, 32 percent right. in the big picture. But that number still frightens all these people. And, and you know, it's something I call FOMT, fear of a mean tweet. These guys are terrified of Trump's Twitter feed. They do not like it. It, it intimidates them. It causes them to stay awake at night. They are desperately afraid that one day Donald Trump's going to tweet, Congressman Smith is an asshole and he should be primaried because I don't like it. Right. And it can happen. I mean, it has happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it has happened. And, and, you know, Dean Heller and Jeff Blake and all these other guys who, who, who have crossed the, crossed the bridge mm-hmm. don't like Donald Trump for, the, for, for ideological reasons, because he's not a conservative, but they also don't like him because he threatens them. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go and say, I'm going to spend a million dollars against Dean Heller, mm-hmm. or I'm going to get primary opponents against Jeff Blake, well, you know what, at some point... Those guys realize, hey, wait a minute, we're members of a co-equal branch of government. We don't work for this fucking guy. And, and that's why the pushback is starting to come. And and when McConnell, I think when McConnell broke, and McConnell has broken, you know, people, it's, it's not as obvious in public as people think, but the moment it broke for McConnell was when Trump's super PAC Went out to Heller, one of one of McC- one of one of McConnell's vulnerable incumbents. Mm-hmm. Went after Heller, and they booked a million dollars worth of TV time against him. That was a bridge too far. Mm-hmm. That's something you don't play inside of a party that you claim to be the head of. Mm-hmm. And 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 mm-hmm. the fact that he thought he was going to get away with that, and if people thought that was a good idea, it was offensive to Mitch McConnell because it was a vulnerable incumbent. But it was also offensive to Mitch McConnell, I, I would like to speculate, knowing him a little bit, because it was politically dumb. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's some vulnerable Democrats out there we could be taking out with the same million dollars he would be spending to screw over a Republican incumbent. Mm-hmm. But Trump doesn't think that way. He doesn't think of himself as a party leader. He thinks of himself as a king. Mm-hmm. And he only thinks about himself. So these guys recognize at some point that their self-preservation instinct has to be listened to. Mm-hmm. And and look, at it, as his numbers drop and drop and drop, and right now, I mean, pe- people on the left shouldn't shouldn't think that they're going to go a lot lower because mm-hmm. right now they're almost at the theoretical low point that they can that they can reach. Mm-hmm. You can't get much worse than this, and and have anything more than your base. Mm-hmm. And you know, your base alone doesn't get you home. If you're running in swing states and swing districts, mm-hmm. you got to build out beyond your base. Mm-hmm. And the, so the, the conundrum these guys face is, okay, got to keep the base, therefore i got to keep Trump happy. But I can't win with the base because I'm not a celebrity like Trump. Mm-hmm. I'm, with, without, with just the base, I'm not a celebrity like Trump. I'm not as well-known as Trump. So I've got to go out and reach out to other people. But if I reach out to other people, that, that itself offends Trump and he becomes an angry human being and starts to attack him. Mm-hmm. So Ugh. it's kind of a it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a really ugly uh, hostage situation. Really ugly. <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah, and believe me, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, Stockholm syndrome 
you know, with some of the guys who are supposedly pure conservatives who are who are so so you know principled mm-hmm. that 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 you know they they used to you know be angry. I think they used to get really angry with people like me because I would go out and we'd go to places like Vermont and Massachusetts and Washington and meet elect Republicans. Okay, and people would like. How, how does this happen? What miracle is this? Mm-hmm. But all the purity posse used to say things like, well, your candidate for governor of so-and-so, he's not right on every abortion vote, or he's mm-hmm. not right on every single vote about this or that. Well, the, the, the option is you either you either take impurity or you mm-hmm. get nothing. Yeah. yeah they used to, uh, I, I had a guy who legitimately criticized me one time. He goes, well, uh, it was great you helped get Giuliani elected and everything, but you know, couldn't you have found a pro-life candidate? <clears throat> I'm like, you realize the word you're looking for here is New York City, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this is this was an election in New York City. Mm-hmm. You're, 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 just a reminder, New York, mm-hmm. in New York, you know. <laughs> yeah, but but those guys who who used to be the most the most, you've got to be pure. You've got to be Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz isn't conservative enough, mm. you know. Wow, Ted Cruz isn't conservative enough? Goodness. I believe there are people like that. There are people like that. Oh, wow. Okay. And now those people are like, everything Donald Trump does is fine. Uh-huh. And so these members are like, what the fuck do I do? You know? Yeah. I can't. I can't. I can't be right enough um, in the minds of the, of the Trump voter. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's because they also haven't realized something. Trump voters are not behavioral Republicans. Mm-hmm. They are Trump voters. Mm-hmm. They are voting about the celebrity they're not voting about a set of principles and ideologies. They're voting about sort of like the hot button issues on Fox News that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, boy. Okay. Uh, well, how do you see all this playing out? I mean, it seems like the Russia thing's gaining gain steam. Um, you know, do you see him resigning? Is he going to be impeached? Is there a 25th Amendment in the future? Is a certain tape going to drop? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> let, me, let me run down the, 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 the situation here. Um, it is, and I tell people this all the time, it is almost impossible that Donald Trump will be impeached. Really? It is, it is. Even if the Democrats take the House, he will not be impeached. Hmm. Okay? Hmm. It is almost, I mean, unless we find the white-hot moment where Donald Trump said, yes, Vlad, I will do whatever you say if you help my campaign. You know, if, if, if that comes out, a different ballgame. Okay? Right. Mm-hmm. But, but there's a very, very small likelihood of that outcome. Mm-hmm. 25th Amendment is even more remote. Mm-hmm. The 25th Amendment requires that, a, that a, a, a cabinet full of people who were not selected for their particular brilliance, if you take my meaning. Right, are we talking uh, about Ben Carson again? He might be. He might be. Um, and, 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 and frankly, a number of others. Right, people sure. that I like, but, you know, these aren't, these aren't fast-moving rocket scientists. Um, a number of people that would require 50% of those people to engage in a active uh, agreement that the president who hired them is a lunatic and unqualified for office or a criminal and unqualified for office mm. um, and requires them to act secretly and in concert to remove him from office under the 25th Amendment. Mm. 
it is again vanishingly unlikely. I just want people to have like a realistic expectation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The most likely scenario of all is that Donald Trump grinds and grinds and grinds for four years and doesn't run again because he hates the job and he mm-hmm. does hate the job. Mm-hmm. The second most likely scenario is that the political pressure raises and raises higher and higher. He's more and more exposed to to you know legal and political jeopardy and that he leaves office. Mm-hmm. It's not impossible to see this guy who is a self-indulgent man-child say, I'm sick of being yelled at every day. Mm-hmm. I'm Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and I don't you know who I am, mm-hmm. and stomp off into the, into, the, into the sunset. That would be a perfectly explicable, um, that'd be a perfectly explicable outcome mm-hmm. in my view. Right. Um, now, what would you personally like to see the Republican Party turn into or, or be, or, or how do you see them making a turn, or do you think that we just have to burn it all down and start again a new party? I mean, do you think that the brand will be so toxic after Trump that there's no way to recover it, or what? I think it is. I think it, the Republican Party has. Uh, I think. I, well, I think both parties are profoundly broken. First uh-huh. off, um, I think neither party is ready for the fact that the economy is going to radically change in the next five to seven years and that and that what is the middle class today is about to get blown out completely by automation and artificial intelligence mm-hmm. um, and that and that the gigantic international sovereign debt overhang um, that is that is uh, you know that we're, we've been we've been skipping past and merrily whistling past for decades now is going to come and bite us so I don't think either party's ready for this profound economic dislocation that's coming. Mm-hmm. As for the Republican Party, if it can be saved, it's going to be saved by a by a handful of people um, who who get outside of the blast radius and who who are like George H. W. Bush in the wake of Watergate. Okay, mm-hmm. in the wake of Watergate, George H. W. Bush said. Let me know what I have to do to save the Republican Party, because I wasn't a Nixonite. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a, a a guy who defended him from the last dog died, and he wasn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, people forget about this in Congress. I, I've given him a lecture a couple of times. I gave a talk to the members recently, and I said, "Listen, I know you guys think that that the worst is past you, but you were living in the summer of '73, not the summer of '74, and." In 74, because of Richard Nixon, because of the perception that Republicans in Congress had defended Nixon to the last, to the last minute, we lost 49 House seats and 8 Senate seats. Mm. If you guys are ready for that, then God bless you. Mm-hmm. If you want a little bit of life insurance, you put some distance between yourself and Trump and you do it soon. Mm-hmm. You do it while it counts. You do it while it hurts. But and, and and that's sort of what's starting to happen now. Mm-hmm. So if the Republican Party can be saved, it's going to be saved by a, a small sort of lump group of folks who are not who are not the leadership, who are not the most prominent faces or or, or names. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be saved by people who understand the political jeopardy and the moral jeopardy that Trump has put them in every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to definitely take some profiles and courage on on all ends here. Yeah, um, and right now we're stock full of profiles and chicken shit. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a good way to put it. Um, we're getting near the hour mark, and I really do appreciate you uh, taking so much time Absolutely. to talk with me. Um, well, I always ask this before we go. What music have you been listening to lately? What music have you listened to lately? Um, so I've been writing a lot lately, mm-hmm. and and so I, I my normal sort of 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 electronic uh, mix and my normal sort of like. As, as, as my daughter says, EDM dad, um, I sort of backed that down. And because I've been writing, I've been listening to a lot of, uh, like, uh, high Baroque stuff, you know, Vivaldi, Corelli, mm. Albinoni, Mozart, you know, it just, um, you know, less, less, less rock and roll and less electronic and more of that. Although I, the other day I wrote, I, I found this, um, I found this one remix of the, the famous Tangerine Dream song "Love on a Real Train" mm-hmm. on SoundCloud, but it was like an hour-long remix, so like the suburban Chicago commuter remix of "Love on a Real Train." It's like an hour long. I'm like, wow, oh, this is perfect. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> a lot of writing done on that one. Oh yeah, yeah. definitely. But I have, a, I have a, a pretty Catholic musical, pretty broad musical, <laughs> but, uh, a lot of Baroque lately. Oh wow. So, okay, cool. Well, is there anything else I didn't ask you about that you want to get in there before we go? Ah, no. I, just, I appreciate your time, and it was it was a fun conversation. Yeah, thanks so much, and uh, it'll be out later today. I'll send you a link, and I hope to talk to you again soon. So thank you so much. All right, man. All right. Thanks, man. Take Bye. it easy. Bye.
you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast everywhere it's available, which includes iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. It really helps. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Until next time.